Hi, everyone. This is Frank Fear, and welcome to Joey P. and Frank, Week 3 NFL Edition. Things settled down a bit in Week 2 after a record-setting week for underdogs in Week 1. But, of course, there were still surprises. The Raiders went cross-country and handled the Steelers. No immaculate reception this time, but that card of rugs bomb was a thing of beauty. And although winning wasn't a surprise, look how the Bills handled the Dolphins in Miami whitewashing the Finns 35-0. to zero. And how about those Patriots? We thought this might be a down year, and it may still be, but they manhandled the Jets in Foxborough to go 2-0 and zero on the season. And there were three tight games, three tight games in particular, two of them by a point that flipped the script in terms of what pundits thought would be happening. I'm talking about Arizona over Minnesota by a point in Minneapolis, of course, the Ravens over the Chiefs by a point in that thrilling Sunday night game, and the Titans by three on the road, a surprise at Seattle beating the Seahawks. Well, Joey has made his picks for week three, and he's ready to share them with you, plus give you our what we call four plus one picks of the week. Uh, the final pick, of course, the plus one pick being Ravens at Detroit Lions. So for all the details, here's my sidekick. Joe Platania. All right. Thank you very much, Frank. And uh, welcome again to the folks tuning into edition number seven of this uh, podcast. Hopefully there's many, many more to go. <laughs> time will tell about that. Uh, time flies when you're having fun, and it's always fun to watch football, cover football, and talk about it. We're into week three already. Let's take a look uh, askance back at week two. And through week two, if you look at some of the league-wide stats that the league uh, likes to trumpet every week, uh, Quarterbacks are completing exactly two-thirds of their passes through two weeks, 66.7%. That's a record, and it should be no surprise to anyone who knows that this is a pass-happy league and the game is played on the perimeter with speed and quickness. It's not so much a game in the trenches anymore, even though you're always going to rely on those guys to uh, get you down the field. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's an outside perimeter game now, and the quarterbacks are rising to the challenge, completing fully two-thirds of their passes through two weeks. And... Uh, I think it's a cumulative. I think that's added up to a cumulative passer rating of 94, which I think is the fourth best at this juncture of uh, of the season. There have been 10 games around the league that have ended with uh, spreads of three or less. Uh, lots of close games around the league. That's what you get when you have parity. So there's been 10 games with a field goal or closer at the end. That's tied for the second most in league history. So it's always going to be an exciting. Uh, Time whenever you tune into an NFL game, no matter which teams are involved, although you do have the occasional blowout. Um, everybody is, is, at least the league is trying to put everybody on an even footing, the better to promote the parity that exists in the league, that's for sure. Yeah. Joey, we can't go very far in this podcast without turning to you for your comments on that incredibly interesting, exhilarating Sunday night game uh, when the Ravens took on the um, champion Kansas City Chiefs, everybody thought Chiefs would win. They got that pick six early, but lo and behold, the Ravens came back and won that game. Yeah, there's a special aura about the Ravens whenever they've played these spotlighted primetime games, especially when they faced adversity going into them. Uh, I mean, I, I, we, we, would, we would need three or four hours to talk about some of the crazy things that have happened 
when the Ravens are in the primetime spotlight and how more often than not they'll pull those games out. And the same thing happened here because I was among the many who thought Kansas City would win. I, I mean, I had them winning by only seven, but it would not have surprised me if the Chiefs had blown them out, considering the Ravens had 15 guys on IR, including a half dozen starters. Kansas City had one player on IR. And, and of course, ever since Mahomes has come to the Chiefs, they're 3-0 and against the Ravens. The Chiefs had won the last four meetings. Uh, you know, in, in a bit to... In an attempt to get some levity going among the fan base here, I tried to chalk it up to the uh, the one time the Ravens wore mustard yellow pants with their uniforms. It was against the Chiefs in 2015, and they lost that day, and they haven't beaten the Chiefs since. But, mm. uh, of course, no such thing as jinxes. The Ravens just had to go in, shake off that Vegas loss on a short week, coming back from Vegas, and... Uh, and really uh, put their nose to the grindstone and, and, and ugly up the game, and, and that's what they do. That's, uh, Harbaugh always said it, and it turned into the title of a book somebody wrote around here. It's never easy, never pretty, but it's us. That's the Raven way, and that's exactly what happened. Of course, it did help that the, the two coordinators, as they often do, they uh, put a few extra ingredients in the mix. Greg Roman said today when he met with the media they had over three dozen different run plays that they used against the Chiefs. And you're probably wondering, well, when you run the ball, you go to only one of a five or six different holes along the line. How can you have three dozen different runs? But uh, that's what they did, and the Ravens got that ground game cooked up and, and managed to win the time of possession battle, keep Patrick Mahomes off the field, throw his timing off a bit, and uh, that was how the Ravens were able to do that. On defense, they had a couple of different wrinkles there. They, they, sh- they double-teamed Tyreek Hill the whole game. I thought that was a big, big key, and uh, – keeping Travis Kelsey relatively under wraps. I mean, this, these Ravens safeties, and Deshaun Elliott has a concussion. He didn't practice today. But the Ravens safeties have uh, been facing some real top-drawer tight ends in Darren Waller, Travis Kelsey, and now they're going to go up against T.J. Hawkinson, which may be the only real offensive threat that the Detroit Lions have. So it's up to the Ravens' uh, safeties to keep down guys like that. And they kept Darren Waller down for a half. They they kept Travis Kelsey relatively quiet, although he did have that 46-yard touchdown where the Ravens' tackling was absolutely abysmal. And now it's up to them to, to cover T.J. Hawkinson. So uh, with the wrinkles they had on defense and uh, the ground and pound on offense, they were able to stay not just stay with Kansas City but come from behind, something people said the Ravens could not do with this kind of offense, and uh, pull out a much-needed win that will give them a big jolt of adrenaline in this early part of the schedule because if you look at the Ravens' schedule, it doesn't get tougher until a bit later. Yeah, and talk about a jolt. You've said it many times, uh, and you wrote about it this week in the uh, sports column about just how popular the NFL is. And with that Sunday night feature game so early in the season with two powerhouse teams, I mean – even though the game didn't get over until uh, midnight Eastern time, uh, it just uh, it just fuels the fire of interest in the NFL. And talking about fueling the fire, the season moves on, and we're now in week three. Uh, we're going to do the as always the four plus one. So let's start, Joe, by having you talk about I think a very interesting matchup uh, that many folks are overlooking, and that's Cleveland and the Bears. Yeah, the interconference games, uh, they're usually pretty interesting because, you know, the teams like that, they don't, they don't meet that often. So they only meet once every four years and maybe, maybe a bit more often with that new interconference placement rule. But usually it's once every four years that teams from different conferences meet. 
and you've got a couple of t- uh, teams here that uh, are, are, are a bit of a crossroads. I mean, the national media is still in love with the Browns, but one thing that the Browns have keep doing, even as they've risen to the heights that they've risen, they struggle against bad teams. I mean, sure, they beat Houston by 10, but they had to pull away late to do it against a quarterback in Tyrod Taylor, who I've never thought very highly of, to be honest with you. I mean, Cleveland won that game. They lost to Kansas City by blowing a 12-point lead because Cleveland, as I've said many times, they can't stand prosperity. Now they go on the road to Chicago, and uh, Justin Fields is going to take over for the injured Andy Dalton. Justin Fields is a very talented young man, but he is a rookie. We cannot forget that. So uh, is the Browns a front four with Miles Garrett going to be able to introduce themselves to Mr. Fields? Uh, I'm not so sure if Fields can get into that Cleveland second level in the secondary he'll be able to uh, make some hay against them they're, they're going to be at home at soldier field so they'll have that going for them uh, the browns have a lot of offensive weapons uh, they're, they're a bit raven like when it comes to their ground game they have more than one option so that's why i think cleveland is going to be able to um, eventually pull away and win by uh, what did i say 26 17 in the weekly picks on the sports column dot uh, sports uh, but this is going to be a, another tough game for Cleveland against the team that I feel is not in the upper echelon of the league. And if they keep struggling against teams like this, uh, I don't see where the, all this Super Bowl talk is justified. Mm. Yeah, you know, and and as I think about that game and how important it is for Cleveland to show they're consistent, boy, I have a lot of friends, a lot of friends who are Steelers fans. And as you know, that's a special breed of NFL fan. They, they live and die. Obviously, a lot of fan bases do, but they live and die with their Steelers. And last week, my, oh, my, who picked the Raiders to go in to come into Pittsburgh and take care of business? And boy, that long pass from a car to rugs. 60 some yards, I think. Uh, my God, yeah. that ball was in, air, in the air for, it seemed forever. So let's talk about yeah. the Pittsburgh Steelers and another team that can't stand prosperity uh, when it gets it, and that's few and far between, the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, Pittsburgh will be back at Heinz Field for this one. And uh, yeah, they got surprised by a Raider team that flying cross country on a short week after beating Baltimore at home. Uh, Henry Ruggs, uh, he was the first receiver taken in a draft that was loaded with receivers that many had more highly rated than him. But uh, that's the Raider way. I mean, they're going to draft the guys that can go vertical, even though Al Davis is no longer with us. They still keep living out that philosophy. Uh, Living here in Maryland in the Baltimore area, a Baltimore product who played at Maryland, Darius Hayward Bay, he was the seventh overall pick of the Raiders just because of his vertical ability, and nobody had him rated that high. That's just what the Raiders do. But uh, no doubt that uh, uh, Cincinnati and and Pittsburgh, this is a game, well, what I talked about earlier, playing the game with speed on the outside. I mean, you've got uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, James Washington, and Deontay Johnson. And on the other side, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and Jamar Chase. I mean, this this could be a real feast for the eyes. Even though I did not pick it to be a real high-scoring game, it could end up that way with a lot of big plays on both sides. Both secondaries are not very good. And then again, though, both offensive lines are not very good. So are the quarterbacks going to get time to throw the ball? Uh, we'll have to wait and see on that because you have an aging Ben Roethlisberger up against a young greenhorn like Joe Burrow. So many, many interesting polarized uh, uh, components to this one here. Uh, but it comes down to the fact that these are two division rivals who know each other well, who have to 
who are already behind the eight ball. I know all four teams in the division are one and one, but it just Pittsburgh and Cincinnati look like the weaker of the two of the four teams to me. So I'm taking the Steelers only because they're at home. And secondly, a bit of a selfish reason here. I just find it hard to believe that Pittsburgh, as much as I feel they are in a bit of a rebuild mode, I find it hard to believe that their stock has dropped below that of the Bengals. I find it hard to believe that they would finish below Cincinnati. It could end up that way, especially if they lose this one. But Pittsburgh at home for a second straight week, uh, you know, hoping to clean up what went wrong against Vegas. I have Pittsburgh winning by, a, uh, let's see, 23-15, one score game. But uh, this will not be an easy game for them to win, just as Vegas uh, proved uh, ultimately difficult. Yeah, and talking about Vegas, uh, another interesting game uh, when we think about what obviously what the Raiders did in Pittsburgh, but also what the Bills did to uh, Miami last weekend in, in South Florida. Uh, so let's talk about the Raiders versus Miami. Yeah, the Raiders are back home in the new Allegiant Stadium. Uh, it's, it's not a primetime game this time. It's a Sunday afternoon game. As everybody knows, there's plenty to do in Vegas. So while I'm sure there'll still be a sellout, I don't know if you're going to quite have that spotlighted aura and atmosphere you had for the Monday night opener. And as I've said and written, I thought the, uh, the crowd, while it was loud, I thought it was a bit overrated thinking that that was going to be a real intimidating factor for the Ravens. You know, there's nothing the Ravens haven't figured out as far as crowd noise. I mean, every team in the league blares out music at their practice sessions. The Ravens do it. Everybody does it. So I'm sure they were not caught off guard by that. I'm sure Miami will not be caught off guard by that. Uh, but the, what might hurt them a bit is that Tua Tagovailoa will not be playing with the bruised ribs and Jacoby Brissett. He's rather young to be a journeyman, but that's exactly what he is, and it's up to him to have Miami go into Vegas and, uh, and try to get the job done. Uh, let's not also forget that Vegas got out to a really good start last year. I believe they started out 6-3 and three and finished 2-5 and five because their defense got worn down and all of a sudden they forgot how to tackle. But right now, we're not in the second half of the season. It's still early. Uh, a lot of optimism surrounding the Raiders. And uh, with them being 2-0, and there's reason for it. I think they pull out a close one against the Dolphins at home. But, again, the aura is going to be different here. And Miami, I think they'll put some points on the board. I think maybe losing Tua proved to be such a shock to the system that they put no points on the board last week. I think they'll uh, get their offense back on track. But I just think Vegas has more momentum right now, and they take this one 24-20. Joe, before we leave the Raiders, uh, I know you think very highly of former Raiders coach uh, Tom Flores, who will be going into the Hall of Fame uh, this year. You're going to be offering comments, more comments about the Hall of Fame later, but uh, say a few words about Tom Flores. Tom Flores, who was also a backup quarterback in Kansas City long ago, too. Tom Flores is getting his Hall of Fame ring at halftime of that game in mm -hmm. Vegas, and uh, I'm going to... I, want, I have some things here on the Hall of Fame I want to address a bit later. But uh, Tom Flores, he was part of those, those two classes in one that got inducted because of the pandemic. And um, I'm personally, I'm really, really happy to see that. A very, very good Super Bowl winning coach. One of the few uh, 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 Hispanic Americans is in the Hall of Fame now. Um, a really underrated part of Raider history because he, he doesn't have the outsized personality of a John Madden or a John Gruden or somebody like that. But Tom Flores, he's getting his Hall of Fame ring, and we'll have more on the Hall of Fame later. Yeah, when you think about the Raiders and you think about uh, a lot of bombast, but when you think about Flores, he's under, he was understated, very effective, cerebral, and uh, deserves uh, the accolades that he's gotten. Now, moving on to a real marquee game. 
uh, this is, I think, on many people's lists, the game of the week. The Los Angeles Rams against the Tampa Bay Bucks. So, yeah, um, what do we have? Well, it's at SoFi Stadium, the site of the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 56 coming up. If they meet in the playoffs, I'm thinking Tampa Bay will be the top seed, but we'll sort all that out as we get closer to Christmas. But this one's in L.A. It's my two teams that I have in the NFC title game this year, Rams and Bucks. Uh, Tom Brady with yet another milestone. This is going to be the uh, 37th different city in which he's played a game in the 44th different stadium. I think there's seven stadiums he's played in that don't operate anymore or have been torn down or something or other. So <laughs> that gives you a little bit of perspective there. I, I think this is just going to be one heck of a cracking game like that Monday night or two years ago in the Coliseum when Kansas City and the Rams, they each scored over 50. The Rams came out on top in that one. Uh, this one, I don't think you're going to see quite the explosion of points, especially because both of these defenses are really, really superb. I think you'll see a back-and-forth game in the 20s. I have the Rams winning by three, even though the last three times these two teams have met, the visiting team has won, which should not come as any surprise when you consider how even they are. This would have been a good game to flex out to Sunday night, but the Sunday night flex program doesn't get started until week six, and we're only in week three. So it's going to be one of those 425 specials. Uh, Fox has the game, and I'm sure most of the country is going to get to see it. Um, Matt, Matthew Stafford, is, he's, he's found a new life with some great teammates in, in uh, Los Angeles. And he's got one of the most underrated receivers in the league playing with him, a guy named Cooper Cup, who I know is familiar to a lot of people. When the Rams got to Super Bowl 53 a few years ago, Cooper Cup didn't play. He was out with an injury. The Rams only had three points that day, and they lost 13 to 3. I think he's really, really a key component to that offense. And uh, Tampa Bay's pass rush, of course, is pretty well known what they can do. This, this should be a really even game and a really fun one to watch. I got the Rams winning by three, but of course, Tampa being at the top of the heap right now, no surprise if they win. It should be a really, really fun one. Yeah, one of your colleagues at the sports column, Brady Grogan, featured Cup. Uh, he does a weekly recap of the NFL and picks his Mount Rushmore players of the week. And Cup was there and, and fans need to follow him. I mean, from a fantasy point of view, this guy is really productive, highly energetic uh, and very, very effective. Uh, of course, with the four plus one, the plus one means Baltimore, hometown Ravens, and they're going to play on the road the first Sunday, Sunday day game of the year against the my Detroit Lions I hate to say that but I'm I'm from Michigan so um your take on the Ravens versus the Lions they don't play very often I think this is as you wrote as you wrote in the sports column this is the sixth time all time the Ravens and Lions have met so what do you think yeah 26 years of Ravens history and uh, the five previous meetings represent the fewest the, the Baltimore has ever played any opponent at all. You would think it'd be one of the West Coast teams, but no, it's the Detroit Lions. This is only the sixth time they will have met. Uh, and uh, it's, it's got to be the real tonic for the Ravens right now because uh, a, a very physically and mentally exhausting game with Kansas City. But John Harbaugh is not the kind, John Harbaugh, who grew up in Ann Arbor, by the way, he's not the kind to uh, let this uh, team uh, you know, have a letdown. So he's going to bring his team into, into, I was going to say Ann Arbor. They're not playing at the big house, mm -hmm. but they're playing in the Motor City, and he's going to need a lot of tickets. It's his 59th birthday today, so happy birthday to him. What a way to spend it, to go out to Detroit, uh, a town that he knows very, very well, and his brother Jim, too, 
to, to play a Lions team. They don't see that often. The Lions, well, I, I talk about Tom Flores a bit earlier. Calvin Johnson will be getting his Hall of Fame ring at halftime of that game, and it might be the only <laughs> highlight for the uh, Lions fans. Uh, they might as well put out a bumper sticker, rebuilding since 1957, and they <laughs> no titles hmm. since then, one playoff berth, and no division title since 1993, which means – the, the present-day NFC North, which was formed in 2002, they've never won that either. And right now they have the youngest team in the NFL, 15 rookies and first-year guys on the Week 1 roster. And for perspective, the youngest team in NFL history was the 2002 Ravens because they had 19 rookies and first-year guys. Of course, one of them was named Ed Reed, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But uh, the Lions the Lions have uh, only four guys on their roster over 30 years old. They have an average experience level of three years per man. You, they might as well get rid of the blue on their uniforms and turn it green. This is a really green outfit here. And uh, – they're going to have to rely on guys like Jared Goff and T.J. Hawkinson to get things done against a Raven defense that is starting to get a little more just as nicked up as the offense has been. Uh, safety Deshaun Elliott had a concussion, didn't practice today, and uh, someone's going to have to be responsible for Hawkinson. He has uh, 16 catches, tied for the most in the league. By the way, he's tied with Cooper Cup. He's tied with Cooper Cup for that distinction. So that's that's kind of ironic that we would talk about both of them. But uh, this this. This is going to be a, a quite the game for Ravens fans who might be uh, anxious that the Ravens are going to have a letdown. Some are even calling it a trap game. But I have a very strict definition. I have a very strict definition of trap games, and that would be you're playing a weak team the week before you play a very strong one. And after this one, the Ravens play Denver, and I would not call I would not call Denver an elite team. So to me, this is not a trap game, although. In the any given Sunday world of the NFL, they're going to have to be on their P's and Q's, and Harbaugh and his staff are the kind of guys that can do that. I have the Ravens winning uh, big time. I think I had it at 33-10, to 10. and, uh, you know, it's, it, they're going to drive into that Motor City and, uh, and drive out uh, leaving the Lions looking like roadkill again. Yeah, uh, they, they have to have this game. And uh, for those that uh, are Lions fans or follow the NFL and know about the Lions, the one thing that the Lions have been doing recently, uh, of course, they had Matt Stafford before, but uh, they would come from behind late, and they did it again with a different quarterback uh, against the 49ers. I mean, that 49ers had that game uh, basically in the win column, and here came the Lions again, uh, and uh, they were in a position where they might have won that game in the fourth quarter, which would have been a monumental upset. But uh, we'll see what happens. No, no doubt about that. But I, let me, if yeah, I, I'm sorry if I can just j jump in on something with Jared Goff. There's a stat I saw today that I really couldn't believe. And that is when he quarterbacks games without Sean McVay as his head coach, he's o Jared Goff is 0-9 without Sean McVay. So that's wow. something to, to take a look at. And as yeah. far as uh, the Ravens, I, sa I said Deshaun Elliott wasn't practicing. You know who else wasn't practicing today was Lamar Jackson. Now, I don't know if that means he was taking a veteran's day off or anything like that. But it's kind of noteworthy that uh, Deshaun, uh, that uh, Lamar Jackson was not practicing today. Derek Wolf, the defensive end, he's had a back and hip problem. He hasn't played all year yet, but he's not on IR, so they're hopeful for him. Ronnie Stanley, the tackle, he injured his uh, ankle again, and uh, he's, he's going to be out for a few weeks, I think. And Marquise Brown, he's got an ankle problem. 
He has eight touchdowns in his last eight games, tied for the most in the league. So they'd love to have him going up against a very depleted Lions secondary. Their cornerbacks mm. are all banged up. Jeff Akuda and the guy filling in for him, whose name I will not even attempt, he had to leave the Green Bay game. So uh, the Lions, uh, they can't stop the run, can't stop the pass. Uh, so uh, hmm, it, it's kind of a dilemma there in Detroit. You know, one of the interesting things too, Joe, as you were talking even if you're not an NFL fan or you go, I don't want to watch the game between the Ravens and the, and the Lions, uh, anybody who watches Lamar knows that this is a very special athlete. And even if you're not a football fan, just watching what he does with the ball and how he's able to make those quick reads and decide what to do, it, always doesn't, it doesn't always turn out in his favor. But he's one of those he's one of those players like a Michael Jordan. You just love to watch because of his physicality and his ability to figure out very quickly how to succeed in a very complex uh, and difficult game. Hey Lamar, uh, one thing he hasn't done a lot of in the first two games is a lot of the uh, the the RPO stuff, a lot of the read option, pistol formation stuff. The Ravens seem to have gotten away from that a little bit. I don't know if that's by design to make him more of a pocket passer. And I will say, I think Lamar's pocket presence has improved. The throws to the sidelines where you need the strong arm, I think those have improved, especially when he uses his favorite target, Mark Andrews. I think you have seen some improvement in Lamar's passing technique, his pocket technique, the offensive line. Uh, one of the questions of this team has been able to give him time at least, especially in that second game against Kansas City when he needed time against Frank Clark and uh, all the pass rushers they have over on that team. So the, the evolution of Lamar Jackson continues, and if he can get his pocket passing in place, along with 36 different run plays that Greg Roman says he called, then uh, this offense could get back to its 2019 level. Yeah, good thoughts. I know you have some uh, final comments you want to share. You talked earlier about the Hall of Fame, so the floor is yours. All right. Thanks so much, Frank. You know, the, the, uh, the usual preliminary list is out, 122 names on it. Uh, in November, it's going to get cut down to 25 semifinalists and then 15 finalists, and they're going to be voted on uh, the night before the Super Bowl in L.A. Uh, you got to get 80 percent of the vote to get into the Hall of Fame, and, and there's only 49 selectors, mostly a media panel. 49 selectors choose the Hall of Famers. you got to get 80 percent of them, so that's roughly 40 out of 49 that uh, that make the call on this, and uh, there's uh, something new here. Uh, there's a new uh, coaches only category where one nominee is put up ahead of time. This year, that's Dick Vermeil. We've had the contributors category now for a few years, and this year, I'm glad to say that that's Art McNally, uh, the former official supervisor. There is nobody, nobody of, uh, affiliated with officiating who's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's shocking to me. We can consider that. Hockey referees are in that Hall of Fame, baseball umpires, basketball refs. You have some Hall of Famers among those crews, but nobody in the officiating community is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And to have Art McNally nominated in the contributor category, that's good news. Now, the bad news about that is that Art Modell, once again, has not been put up for nomination. He's made the final voting list twice, uh, I think in 2002 and again in 2013, and he has not gotten in. I mean, how do you write the story of the NFL without Art Modell, who helped foster the marriage between football and television? Um, he should have been inducted long before he even thought of moving his team. But a lot of people are holding that against him. But gee whiz, Al Davis moved his team twice. He sued the league twice. He got in. That wasn't a problem. But anyway, Art McNally, he's the contributor this year. 
Uh, Cliff Branch is the senior nominee. That's kind of like baseball's veterans committee. So uh, th- those that are nominated in those specific categories, the contributor, the coach, the senior, they usually do get the 80% that they need. Sometimes they don't, but usually they do. So when it comes to picking a Hall of Fame class from this year's uh, group, and you've got some really good first-time nominees in there like Robert Mathis and Vince Wilfork and Andre Johnson and uh, people like that, my picks for the Hall of Fame this year, it's going to be McNally, Vermeil, and Branch. But I'm going to go with Steve Smith, Ravens and Panthers, a terrific receiver, racked up a lot of good numbers. Jared Allen, one of the great sack artists in the NFL, had numbers comparable to Terrell Suggs. And Suggs is not eligible yet, but I think he'll get in when the time comes. Tony Baselli, a guy uh, who came from that golden age of offensive tackles, Orlando Pace, Walter Jones, and the best of them all, I think, Jonathan Ogden. And Ogden is in, and I think Baselli is going to get in. And the other two spots, uh, as far as the five modern era guys, I'm, I'm, I have a soft spot in my heart for the special teamers. And you started to see some punters and kickers get in in recent years. But the special teamers I have going in this year would be Steve Tasker and Devin Hester. Hester was a Raven for about five minutes. And to be honest, he had nothing left in the tank when he was here. But he's one of the most devastating returners in the history of the league. Steve Tasker, he pretty much wrote the book on special teams coverage guys and how coaches uh, would single out guys to run down there and bust the wedges back when wedges were were legal. They're not anymore. But uh, that's my Hall of Fame class of 22. We'll find out if I'm right the day before the Super Bowl. But for now, I like McNally, Vermeil, Branch, Tasker, Hester, Baselli, Allen, and Steve Smith. Sounds like a good class to me. It does. And, you know, it's always important to remember uh, those who played not just those who were playing. And I'll tell you, I grew up near Buffalo and Steve Tasker, if he wanted to run for mayor, he'd win. And I think he might (laughs) win running for governor. I mean, they love him in Buffalo, not just as what he did with the bills, but how he's conducted himself professionally uh, and his involvement in the community. So great list. I'll tell you you, you something else about Steve Tasker too. He did a lot of great work with CBS uh, calling games. He was on the CBS crew. He was one of the sideline reporters at Super Bowl 47 when the Ravens played the 49ers in New Orleans. That, of course, was the blackout game. And if, if you were watching at home and the power went out and you were wondering what the heck went on, it took only a few minutes for, the, for the, at least the audio to come back. And the first voice you heard was Steve Tasker's. He was the one explaining exactly what went on there. And uh, he, he did some yeoman work in a really tough situation with about 110 million people watching, too. So I never forgot that. Thanks, Joe. Let's go over those picks again in summary. First pick was Cleveland, 26, Chicago, 17, Pittsburgh, 23, Cincinnati, 15, Las Vegas, 24, Miami, 20, the Los Angeles Rams, 26, Tampa Bay Bucks 23, and in our plus one pick, the Baltimore Ravens 33, the Detroit Lions 10. Thanks so much for being with us, everybody. Remember, you can read all of Joe's columns every week. There are three of them um, at the sports column. You can find it on the net and you'll see Joe's articles featured prominently. And we'll be back with you next week as we do week three analysis and Joe makes his week four picks. For Joe Platania, I'm Frank Fear. You've been listening to Joey P. and Frank. And as always, be good sports, everybody. A tug of war, 22 nameless men.
sand rattling in the mud. They called it 